1: Our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC.
0: I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist uh, and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. It's Media Monday today on Deadline DC. Uh, My guests uh, today are John Bennett, uh, who is uh, an editor-at-large and an analysis columnist at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Then in our second segment, uh, Tara Devlin, the host of the podcast Tara Buster, uh, joins us uh, then. Uh, also, our intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, uh, is with us today to make sure the trains run on time and the uh, show stays online. Uh, Before we go to our first guest, though, we're going to play a clip from uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union address, uh, where he talks about uh, job creation. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people
1: in this room, 12 million new jobs, more jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years because of you all, because of the American people.
0: That was President Biden talking about the millions of jobs he created in the first two years of his presidency. Our guest in this segment is John Bennett, uh, editor at large and uh, analysis columnist uh, at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Uh, John writes a great column in addition to his uh, editing duties. Uh, you can check them out. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle is John Bennett T. That's J-O-H-N-B-E-N-N-E-T-T-T. John, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Brad.
0: Okay, let's uh, try this. You heard the president talking uh at his st- on his, during his State of the Union address talking about the millions of jobs his administration has created while he has been president but if you look at the national polls uh, most Americans uh, still think the economy sucks uh, and most people fault the president's handling of the, uh, of, uh, the economy so my question is uh, what
1: is the disconnect there? Well, the president's message just just is not catching on. It's not breaking through. And, you know, if you've you've bought eggs or filled up your gas tank or uh, paid your January um, home heating and electricity bills, you know why. Uh, You know, the president has created a lot of jobs. Um, He did pass the infrastructure bill that eluded former President Trump for four years. Uh, you know, he's pumped COVID aid into the economy. Uh, he's he's done things um, domestic spending wise, but it hasn't done much on inflate to bring inflation down. It hasn't done much to bring energy uh, prices down. He hasn't been able to break through uh, and, and stop the war in Ukraine, which is exacerbating a lot of supply chain issues and and energy costs and and food prices. Um, so you know. The buck stops at the Resolute Desk, and and right now he's the one who sits behind it. So, you know, as I wrote on State of the Union night with with President Biden, it's often uh, two steps forward and three back, and you see that repeatedly uh, when when they the White House has some success, and then they almost trip themselves and uh, and and create some issues, and and I think that also hurts the perception that that this is an effective White House and an effective president. And if you look last Thursday, not, not looking specifically at the merits of, of Washington, D.C.'s criminal code revision bill, but, you know, the president just walks into to lunch with Senate Democrats and announces that he's going to go along with the House uh, if the Senate sends it to him and, and go ahead and block that criminal code in D.C. And again, we can. We don't have to get into the merits of, of that criminal code rewrite, but it was the way the White House did that. You know, he came in with with momentum. Uh, yet again, he had had a, a fairly good couple of weeks, and and now Democrats are really Democrats on the Hill are, are really most Democrats on the a lot of Democrats on they'll put it that way. We haven't seen the Senate vote yet, uh, but a lot of House Democrats for sure are just kind of peeved and and frustrated with the White House. So and and then you know voters. Voters see that kind of dynamic playing out uh, with this White House over and over and over again. And, you know, there, there is a sense of, of that, you know, two steps forward, three back. And then with the economy, um, you know, the president uh, helps pass bills that injects some spending or, or gives gives out aid. But, you know, I went to the supermarket last night and um, boy, I winced. When, uh, when I hit the button to finish and pay, uh, prices are just, are just still way, way up. And, and they haven't been able to do a lot uh, policy wise to get at that. Uh, the projections that inflation would be waning by now just have not panned out. And you know he shouldn't if he's going to run for reelection, which uh, we think he is, um, he doesn't have to, to, to panic that much about inflation right now, uh, but a year from now. When the campaign is really, um, you know, really heating up, if inflation is still this big of a problem, it's going to be a big problem for Biden.
0: Let me ask you this question, John. Uh, In one of your columns, uh, you wrote a column about how uh, Democrats uh, responded to well to Scranton Joe. And uh, what is the difference between President Biden and Scranton Joe?
1: Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the president gave a speech today that um, was, you know, prepared, rolled through the teleprompter, didn't appear to be a ton of ad-libbing. Uh, it's the same message. It's a pretty safe speech. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, of his personality that, that comes through. And he has a couple of these canned speeches that he gives a couple of times a week. And they, they all sound the same. There's, there's not a lot new in there. Um, now, Scranton, Joe, is what we saw during the State of the Union address, where the president is willing to mix it up with his opponents. Uh, he's a lot more plain spoken, you know, almost folksy. Uh, Scranton, you know, Pennsylvania, um, you wouldn't call that home of too many uh, coastal elites. And he's bragged about that. So he's just he's looser. Uh, he's feistier. Uh, he's he's looking for at least a rhetorical fight, or as we saw uh, in the State of the Union, uh, to negotiate in the House chamber and uh, and 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 make sure that Social Security and Medicare won't be on the table as uh, these debt ceiling and government spending talks really get serious in the next few months. Um, not not quite at the serious level yet. So that's the difference. You know these speeches are, are are staff products, the ones that you know he gives during the week. Uh, but a State of the Union, you know, a major address like that, that's got Joe Biden more involved in the process of writing, just like any president, uh, more involved in the really big ones, step by step, line by line, edit by edit. Um, but you know the staff handles these these uh, these lesser speeches. And, and I think you really see that. I, I don't know how much involvement uh, Biden has in drafting a speech he's going to give on a Thursday afternoon to the Rotary Club, uh, but he's really, you can tell he's really involved in these joint addresses to Congress. Uh, his speeches in Warsaw about the uh, Ukraine war uh, have really been, you know, feistier and a lot more color and a lot more emotion. Those are Scranton-Joe speeches. And that's what House Democrats especially, and some Senate Democrats I talked to, that's what they want to see if he runs for re-election, that they want him to get out there. They expect, as of right now, that former President Trump would be the Republican nominee. And, well, we know his tactics and his rhetorical approach to campaigning. And Democrats say that Biden's going to have to mix it up and, and give it back to Donald Trump in a general election. That's okay. what they want to see.
0: We're going to have to take a short break uh, to give our radio listeners a couple minutes of vacation, Uh, but we're staying with our uh, viewers on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, We'll be right back with John Bennett from Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call after this very brief break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is John Bennett from Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Uh, We've been talking about uh, President Biden. Uh, I'm going to change the uh, topic a little bit here. Uh, John, you've written a couple of columns uh, that I've seen about uh, Ukraine. Uh, One thing that's pretty clear is that public support, especially among Republicans for American military aid to Ukraine is declining. Uh, and that creates a big problem uh, because the Ukrainians uh, need our assistance. Uh, it looks like we're in for a you know long, grinding war. That's what the experts think anyway. Uh, but the longer the war goes on, uh, the trend line suggests there'll be less American support uh, for military aid. Uh, Many Republicans in Congress, especially in the House, are very skeptical and even opposed to Ukrainian military aid. Uh, Is there anything President Biden can do to reverse this trend? Uh, Because it looks like this war is going to go on for a while. And as it goes on, unless something happens, it could be less and less public support.
1: There's not much uh, President Biden can do uh, right now. We we got some indication uh, last week from uh, CIA Director William Burns, who made a rare appearance on one of the Sunday morning uh, talk shows. You know, they're starting to talk about things like uh, the Russian military running out of ammunition no time soon, but but that something like that could happen. Now, he may turn to China and and lean on uh, Xi Jinping uh, to give him some ammunition. And that, that seems to be why the Biden administration is really uh, warning Xi to not do that. Um, there would be some pretty serious consequences, they say, probably economic sanctions to start. Um, and of course, if you want to get the Chinese uh, the, if you want to get the Chinese government's attention, you go straight toward its economy, straight toward its pocketbook. So I think that's why we're seeing those warnings. But to get to a point where Vladimir Putin initially shoots himself out of ammunition, I mean, like as you alluded to, that would be months and months away. So this is a long uh, war. This is uh, very drawn out, and and the president has a problem because what you see when you when you look at the polling data here in the U.S., we've had a ten point drop in support for sending additional weapons to Ukraine just since late September, early October. That's a big drop in that amount of time. And again, it's it's largely fatigue. Uh, you know Americans want to see this war end and and like I said, you know taxes aren't going down here right now and folks are paying more for home heating, uh, home heating bills, gasoline, eggs, milk. you can go, keep going down that list and they're seeing these multi-million dollar weapon systems uh, like Abram's tanks, striker vehicles, even though the army, um, never really liked a striker vehicle, and is happy to give them away. Um, still, taxpayers paid for those things, and they're loaded with uh, sophisticated systems that drive up the cost. Um, you know, and we all paid for those, so Americans are frustrated. And you know, we're sending these allegedly state-of-the-art systems, and you know, it's not really turning the war significantly for Ukraine. Depending on what newscast you watch. And what expert is speaking, Ukraine's up one day, then Russia's up three days later, then it's back to Ukraine for a week. So it's it's almost a stalemate in the big picture. And, you know, we're Americans. We want results right now. And like and and you're you're exactly right that the trend line isn't matching the situation on the ground in Ukraine. And as public opinion here goes down, you um, in 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 another few months, it's going to be it's going to be late September at the earliest before there's another spending bill that might move through Congress and get to Biden's desk with some Ukraine aid after a big fight, especially within the Republican the two Republican conferences. That's where the the biggest divisions lie. They're going to have to work that out uh, to get a bill out of the House. Um, Senate Republicans are more on board with Ukraine aid. But they've got to figure out a way to get this out of the house. I think they will. Uh, but September, at the earliest, we've seen these spending fights before. These things usually get punted into November or December. Where's American public opinion going to be on the war? You know, in December, it, it only it's only trending down, and that's going to be a problem uh, for Biden and 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 folks like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader. He's a big proponent of of more aid to to Ukraine. A lot of Senate Democrats that I talked to last week on the Hill, you know, they're concerned about this. They want to get more weapons over there. You're even hearing more and more Democrats, for a guy who covered defense um, for over a decade, to hear Democrats being the ones lobbying to get more weapons into an ally's hand, and and Democrats really taking the lead on a war, it's kind of, we're in the upside-down universe uh, for someone like me. But that's where we are. They're calling for F-16s to Ukraine. And they're 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 pressing the president. You know, he's also a former Senate Democrat. So fascinating dynamics here, but public support, you know, it could be harder for Biden to ask for however many billions of dollars in an aid package that they're they're they might be thinking about in the West Wing now. He might have to shrink that between now and and September, October, November.
0: Uh, how does the uh, speaker feel about uh, Ukraine aid? At one point uh, early on, maybe before he actually became speaker, I think it was before he actually became speaker, he said uh, there's going to be uh, no blank check for Ukraine anymore. Uh, how do, We know how his you know, some members of this caucus feel about the situation. In fact, at the uh, conservative, uh, the CPAC conference over the weekend, uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, gave an incendiary speech against Ukraine aid. I think she said that uh, Zelensky, the Ukraine president, is coming for American sons and daughters. But how does the speaker
1: feel? Despite his um, unexpected mentorship of Marjorie Taylor Greene I don't know friendship not sure what to call it I'll leave it there and let the reader uh, let the listeners uh figure that one out uh he's not he's not aligned with her on Ukraine aid he's tried to kind of shoot this one down the middle of his own caucus and and maybe have it a little bit of both ways for now and again he doesn't have to weigh in until we get closer to when that spending bill might actually be be written and move through both chambers you know he's calling For things like tracking the aid, tracking the weapon systems, uh, making sure that the Ukrainians are actually using the weapon systems and are using them effectively, make sure the aid dollars are are going where the Ukrainians say they're going to put those dollars, and not you know. There's been a lot of corruption issues in Ukraine over the years, Um, so he's he's focused on stuff like that. Uh, issues like that. And I think for right now, he's trying to get ready for this coming battle between his heart. John, thank and his you isolation. very
0: much. But unfortunately, you have run out of time. Our guest in this half hour has been John Bennett, uh, uh, opinion uh, analysis columnist and editor-at-large at Congressional Quarterly Roll Call. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon, your host. We're going to start this out before we get to our guest, Tara Devlin. We're going to play this clip uh, from uh, President Biden, the speech portion of the speech he gave yesterday. In Selma, Alabama, celebrating the, uh, uh, honoring the uh, people who gave up their lives, and some did, uh, fighting for uh, desegregation in the South.
1: The truth matters, notwithstanding what the other team is trying to hide, They're trying to hide the truth. No matter how hard some people
0: try, we can't just choose to learn what we want to know and not. What we should know, we should learn everything—the good, the bad, the truth—of who we are as a nation. And everyone should know the truth of Selma. That was President Biden uh, talking about the anniversary, or talking at the anniversary of the Civil Rights March. Uh, at the Pettis Bridge in Selma, that was instrumental in leading to the passing uh, in Congress of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, the one of the uh, the president uh, was, of course, talking about whitewashing history. Uh, a classic example of that is uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is planning on running for president. Uh, the pl- Prelude to Governor Santa's presidential campaign is rich with irony. The candidate best known for support of book bans started his quest for the White House with a book tour. His book, The Courage to be Free, comes from a politician who supported and signed laws that prohibited teachers from talking about black history uh, and high school students uh, from getting advanced college credit for a course in black studies. A much more appropriate uh, title for the governor's book uh, that would reflect his policies would be uh, fear for freedom instead of the courage to be free. DeSantis doesn't make sense uh, for Americans who are concerned uh, and who are friends of freedom. President Biden has moved mountains to bring disenfranchised Americans into the mainstream and give them the freedoms that white Americans have long enjoyed since the founding of our great republic. DeSantis wants to marginalize minorities, which is the last thing we need in a society that is changing color right before our eyes. You can read my columns in the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon, front slash uh, articles that's muckrack.com front slash brad bannon front slash articles our guest in this half hour is tara devlin the host of the podcast tara buster uh tara's uh uh twitter address is real tara devlin tara welcome back to deadline dc thanks for joining us again all
2: right yeah thank you thank you for having me
0: uh the President in his speech uh, yesterday at Selma, Alabama, uh, criticized people who want to, I think he had Governor DeSantis in mind, uh, mm-hmm. who don't want to talk about the uh, African-American struggle for freedom in this country uh, and just wants to completely white- whitewash the historical record. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think?
2: Well, he's 100 percent correct. It takes a level of maturity to function in a free democratic society. And this is what is required of us, that we recognize there are all types, there are all manner of American experiences and they're all equally valid. So to to learn, it's almost it is a patriotic duty. To if we want to have a functioning society that works for all that we that we that we do come together, it's part of you know e pluribus unum and all and learn about each other and it's where it's not uh, such a such a threat, but you see Republicans they're just they they really that that's the thing that they they fear the most, which is a unified country because they won't be able to get away with their they're incipient. I mean, it's not even incipient anymore. Fascism. It's, uh, you know, their authoritarianism requires the the division of the American people. And, uh, you know, they're really good at that, of especially, you know, tickling racist funny bones and throwing uh, red meat to their their base that, uh, you know, I mean, really shame on them. It's to me, it seems like Don't you I mean, don't you get tired of falling for the same old tricks all the time? It's just so it's so, you know, predictable, really. But yeah, Ron DeSantis. And I think he's far more dangerous than Trump, too, because he's for whatever reason considered more mature or whatnot, But he is uh, he's just as disgusting as as Trump and the rest of them, you know, using well, race. Let me ask you mm-hmm. about
0: that, Farrah, because in the column uh, that I just wrote for The Hill, uh, which actually is not online yet, probably be online later today. Uh, but in that column, I make the argument, uh, which you just made, that in some ways mm-hmm. uh, DeSantis is a lot more dangerous uh, than Trump is. Uh, yes. One thing, uh, he is, uh, if you look at the national polls, uh, he is doing better in a, uh, even though DeSantis is behind Trump and the Republican head to heads, he's doing better. Mm-hmm. Uh, than Trump is in a matchup against uh, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because he doesn't have a lot of the personal baggage that Trump comes with. Uh, He has a very uh, attractive uh, family, uh, a wife who's recovered from cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, three cute-looking kids. Uh, He is the governor of a large state. Uh, He Mm -hmm. uh, won a landside. He's now one. He's serving his second term in office. He mm-hmm. won a ran, ran, landslide re election, uh, you know, and he yeah. has you know a serious story to tell. Right. And but you know the the you know he's basically I'm trying I'm going to be friendly here I'm going to be nice. <laughs> he sh- he speaks flash. He sh- exhibits flashes of fascism. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah totally. But. He doesn't look like he's a fascist, right. you know. Um, whereas wow. Trump, you know, he's you know Trump looks scary. Mm-hmm, Does it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worry about Santos because he really some of the stuff he talks about and has done as governor uh-huh. of Florida is really really scary.
2: Yeah, they're right out of the you know Mussolini playbook, and they're just uh, the thing about DeSantis's election. You know, he did win, uh, like in a twenty percent margin or what, whatnot. Yeah, about but that's 20%. yeah, but that's only because he, he literally drew the maps. And this is another thing that the corporate media d- never—they never um kind of put it in context—that DeSantis, for the first time in Florida history, he he himself personally drew the maps of Florida, basically you know, giving him the best possible map that, yeah, that, and he inflicted it on the legislature who initially rejected it because I guess they had some dignity left, but then, <laughs> you know, he beat them down. So that they're running, he ran on that map that, the uh, where democratic districts were completely absorbed into Republican districts. And you know, nullifying votes of Democrats. I mean, this is how they win. They're not. Uh, they really are not a majority party. They never have been. And the the what makes DeSantis dangerous, in my opinion, is that you know he He doesn't have the tweets. You know, he can control himself. And um, but it's the the corporate media. On top of it, they kind of elevate him too as some kind of rational choice to make between. Trump and DeSantis and but the other thing is if, I don't know I'm sure you remember you know throughout our lives we've watched the Republicans they uh, they they have their flavor of the month so let's see what happens with DeSantis but the you know that we had J- Bobby Jindal he was going to save the Republican party he was, you know and uh who was you know I mean and uh, many others you know there's always somebody that they, oh, Marco Rubio, he was one that was going, or uh, Chris Christie, he was another one, you know, that they were, that all yeah. of a sudden everybody was behind until, you know, something ridiculous happened and they they fall out of favor. But because they're not, I mean, I'm sure it's going to happen with DeSantis too, because he's, you know, he's got the charisma of like a, a Brillo dustpan or something. I don't know, it's he's, uh, he's kind yeah. of, I don't know if he's really ready for a national stage with that. Well, we'll find
0: out, but we're going to have to wait until after this break. Uh, We're going to take a break now uh, for our radio listeners, uh, but I'll be continuing uh, with uh, my chat with Tara Devlin for people who view us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, So don't go anywhere. We'll be back with the radio folks in a couple of minutes and we'll stay with the folks who are watching us on social media. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Tara Devlin, host of the podcast, Tara Buster.
2: Nice. Uh,
0: we've been talking about uh, lunatic right-wing republic yes. crazies uh, in this uh, half hour with Tara. Especially scary was uh, if you watched the uh, CPAC conference over yeah. the weekend. Yes. Pretty scary thing. Sarah, what did you take away? And you've watched a lot of uh, the <sighs> yeah. Conference. Well, what did you take away from that?
2: I just well, what yeah. I what struck me really was how low. You know, just when I think they hit bottom, they go lower. You know, we thought that we saw how low they could go when they gave us the likes of Sarah Palin. Now we have a whole party of Sarah Palins. You know, being an ignoramus is that's a selling point to them. And no and facts do not penetrate. So it's it's you waste your breath with them. I mean, you go on uh, have everything that that, uh, you know, I call a perjury traitor green because, you know, that's who she is. But anyway, she, uh you know, saying that uh, Zelensky said he wants American
0: America's sons and daughters to die like this.
2: There is nothing further from the yeah, truth. He I said- mean.
0: He, she said uh, Lozinski is coming uh, yeah. for american sons and daughters
2: yeah he she's just it's just a lie it's simply a lie and they and i don't know what it is they just love being lied to that these people but it's all oh, and and it kind kind of goes to show you with um with the fox revelations not that they were they were revelations that that they their uh audio there that they were that they were lying to their audience that they kind of, it's like confirmation bias. They, they realize that their, that their base or the audience is incapable of, of of evolving. So they just basically are telling them they're there, you know, you're fine the way you are. Don't ever change. Don't ever uh, think about somebody else. You know, it's like, it's very, it's a very infantile, Way of living, especially in a free democratic society with 300 million, mil, 320 million diverse people. You know, it takes a level of maturity to sit down and, and come up with, you know, and have a government that works for everybody. Yeah, but they just cannot do it. They can't share with other people who are different than them. And really, that's that they'll burn the whole damn country down before. They'll evolve. You know? well
0: you know let, let me ask you this question and I should let me point out a couple I know facts, scary as that is. <laughs> uh, one of the context to discussion and especially to uh, Ron DeSantis and his uh, efforts to, mm. to block any kind of uh, uh, education about uh, real education of American history, and I, I think one of the things they're scared of, is that a couple of years ago, the Census Bureau released a report mm. that said by uh, 2045, which mm-hmm. is only 22 years from now, uh, American, uh, this will be a white minority nation. Yes. Uh, yes. The, the, uh, the uh, birth rate for especially Latinos uh, is incredibly high. Uh, the white birth rate is stagnant. And in about 20 or so years, uh, this is going to be a minority white nation. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's what scares yeah. a lot of these people. Yes.
1: Uh, Absolutely.
0: They're really scared of the transformation that's going on in society. Yes. And these kind of changes, you can't stop. You can slow them down mm-hmm. a little bit, but you can't stop them. And I think that scares the hell out of them. Oh, yeah. To that's be it. with you. Absolutely. And you know, I think they already see the signs. If you yes. were, you know, watching TV and watching uh, the ads on TV, you see a lot of couples who are biracial.
2: Right. Uh, right. See mm-hmm. a lot of black
0: and Latino faces. Yeah. And I think all this scares, to, scares them to death. It does. And instead of, you know, d- denying black history and Latino history, we should be embracing it because mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen to America, what is happening to America already.
2: Yes, exactly. And But they, they, you know, can't do it. They just don't have the maturity. And then, especially in their bubbles where they're being told that this is somehow, you know, it's their American birthright to never, ever, ever change, you know, to never consider anybody else or to be uh, be selfish because they're they're and it's also part of their their infantilism you know it's like government the size of government is just right only in the ways that it serves them and then everybody else is taking advantage it's like goldilocks you know uh, and but they want government as you as we know we just don't they just don't want to share i mean like the like the train derailments is a uh, case in point they're like where's You know, where's help? Where's help? Well, I thought you were like, uh, you know, the nine most terrifying words were I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, it's like they it's but, you know, of course, Democrats don't don't hold those kinds of grudges, but we never call them out for it either. We never point out how absolutely dangerous they are. And meanwhile, they'll they turn it around all the time. They, you know, New York values, Massachusetts liberals, you know, they have they have their presidential candidates going around and and campaigning on we are real America, things like that. And this is divisive. You know, you don't see Democrats doing that. We're all. You know, Democrats are all like, well, okay, you know, I'm here to help. Yeah, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. You know, there's no, but, but they're, they just, you know, don't want to share. And this is why they're like, Let's break the country up again. How many times we got to go through this? Oh, yeah. Well, let
0: let me ask you about that. Marjorie Taylor Greene suggested a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, we should break the country up between blue states and red states.
2: Exactly. Because she's an idiot. She's a moron. She has no clue about history. Or uh, rea- much less reality, that's for sure. And that's why everything that comes out of her mouth is a stupid idea because she's not informed. And they think, I don't know where they think they get their ideas from, uh, you know, osmosis. They get it. Yeah. But she, you know, she really is a moron. And it's sad and, and embarrassing that she's walking around the halls of power getting the attention that, you know, that she garners by being a moron. You know, she says these stupid things. And then people are like, you know, you realize, uh, over half of you know, 500,000 people, uh, died settling that question in, uh, in the 1860s. So, but you know, then she's like, well, I didn't mean that. I meant that because she's stupid. She doesn't know. She has no clue, you know? So, They, but they don't feel like they have to educate themselves somehow. That that's for that's the elites. That's for the elite. You know, they just go with their gut or something, and uh, you know, obviously their guts are not that. uh, You know, their guts are kind of disgusting. So, you know, I don't know where uh, really what kind of great country we would have with the morons like that at the helm. And all we can do right now, I guess, is mitigate the damage. But it, you know, it's really embarrassing too. It is. But you know, I mean, maybe, maybe in some alternate universe, Marjorie Taylor Greene is getting what she wants. You know, just like I wish she would secede. I wish she would secede. Just
0: secede, Marjorie. You know, well, it's like, the reality is, I think she is getting what she wants. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that's riding. true. She yeah. sees herself. That's on, right. uh, You know, clips on cable news all the yes. time. Yes. She raises exactly. a ton of money, uh-huh. uh, which she so wants to be Donald mm-hmm. Trump's running mate.
2: I know, I know, I know. And and I watched just from uh, watching CPAC, and I, I I I'm sure you remember in 2019 when she before she was in the Congress, she was harassing AOC. She has this real, you know, she's got uh, you know she's like a rabid dog on a on a chicken wing when it comes to AOC. And she was walking around the halls of Congress with uh, some of her magamoron friends yelling into her mail slot and things like that. And I re rewatched that video and it and it was, you know, it's a stunningly appalling uh, uh, in the it's infantilism. Horrible. We're going to yeah, have that.
0: to talk more about Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah, the for the sure. date because we're running out of time. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank my guest today. Uh, Tara Devlin, the host of the podcast Terra Buster, and mm-hmm. John Bennett, editor in large and analysis columnist at Congressional Quarterly Roll Call. I also want to thank our executive producer, uh, Mark Grimaldi, who stops uh, me frequently from sounding like a <laughs> moron. Oh, uh, no. So the nation oh, no. is indebted to him for that. We'll be back <laughs> next week with more of Deadline DC.